Yeah, it's great to be with you all this evening. And um, it is quite surreal for me to be here, as Ewan has mentioned. I grew up in Winchester, so I know Ethan. Uh, Ewan, sorry, not Ethan, sorry. <laughs> I obviously don't know him very well, do I? I don't even remember his name. It's terrible. No, I, um, I grew up in Winchester and obviously went to a different church and um, we worked very closely together. So it is really special to be here and see now the church that he's been pastoring for seven years or so um, here in Creech St. Michael. So um, it's fantastic. Now, whilst I didn't grow up in a Baptist church, I ended up pastoring one and one in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, I was there for seven years and... Um, Sorry, let me put that, let me just move this. Now, we went out, me and my wife went out in 2011, and we came back last year in December. We returned with a two-year-old daughter, with Maisie, and with a boy on the way. And, um, (laughs) now, God worked, um, he blessed our family, and he worked in and through us in remarkable ways during those seven years. And uh, we eventually we found, you know, people ask us, why did you decide to come back from New Zealand? Why didn't you just stay there? Like, New Zealand is just, you know, heaven on earth. Well, it's, it's nice, but it's not heaven on earth. It's, it's just another place to live. Um, we felt it was time to come back and be with our family, to raise our children with our family, um, and begin to explore ministry in this country, in our home, in, you know, where we grew up. And uh, that's what I'm still doing. We came back in December and we're still exploring our future together. And uh, we're now, we're based in Bath, where my wife is from. And eight weeks ago, we celebrated the birth of our boy, Jesse Samuel. So we've now got two children, a three-year-old who's full of, full of beans, full of energy, jumping all over and squidging her little brother, Jesse. So it is a really special time for us as we now explore our future together here in our home country again, after seven years away. Now, when I chat with people, people, you know, people say, um, what's the biggest difference between New Zealand and the UK? And there are some really big differences. But one that comes to mind is this, the TV. They don't have the BBC in New Zealand. Can you imagine life without the BBC? It's crazy, isn't it? Now, when we got back, I had all of these television programs my friends were telling me about that I could reacquaint myself with on BBC iPlayer. And there was one particular, uh, there was a number of shows that we we ended up watching, and there was one show that uh, me and my wife really enjoyed watching, and it was called The Planets by Professor Brian Cox. I thought it was fascinating. Now, there's one particular episode that I just thought was amazing, and it was... It was all about the origins of Saturn's rings. Now, I'm not here to talk about the validity of the thesis that Brian Cox presented. I'm not here to do that. But the image really stuck with me. It really did. This is what he said about it. He said, um, supposedly, the, the origins of Saturn's rings happened as this icy planet was drawing near to the atmosphere of Saturn. And as it got closer and closer drawn by its gravitational pull, it actually had this effect on this icy planet. It began to be reshaped and deformed and began to rupture, so much so that the gravitational force basically caused it to... it, It tore apart this planet at such a rate that it pumped out 
supposedly, I don't know how they figure out these um, numbers, but sending 15,000 trillion tonnes of ice from this ruptured planet, sending it hurtling around the orbit of Saturn. And at the speed that it was, it just blew up. It's, it basically created the rings of Saturn in a matter of days. Now, that's an interesting thesis. and I, Again, I can't prove that, but... Um, the image really stuck with me, not only because visually on the TV screen it looked quite impressive, but it stuck with me because it actually, to me, it bore a kind of resemblance to what we're experiencing in our society today. I felt that there was a real similarity in our post-Christian culture. That's what we're living in. And we're living in a post-Christian and a consumeristic culture where it feels like, as Christians our lives are being pushed and pulled in so many different ways. There are these ideological forces that have a gravitational pull upon our lives and it's really difficult at times to, be, to remain kind of composed as Christians and not be pushed and pulled by those forces to adopt its, kind of, its vision of the good life and how we should live. Um, and it's a, it's a vision that's often in opposition to the way of Christ. It's post-Christian. It's post the way that Jesus has... Um, revealed to us. And I've witnessed in my life as being a, in being a Christian with friends who have lost their way with Jesus or have, um, or myself at times where I've lost my way. Um, if we're not shaped by a biblical imagination, it's very easy to get sucked into the orbit of our, the values of our culture and to, to be compromised, to be reshaped. And I've, I've known people who've been baptised who have announced, I'm never, I've died to myself, I'm living to a new life. And in a couple of years, just like that icy planet, they look beyond recognition. Their life has completely changed and it's not orbiting around Christ. It's very much being orbited and pulled and pushed by the gravitational force of our society. And they don't look anything like they did on that day they got baptised. It's really sad. Christ demands that we come out of that way of life, that we don't allow the push and pull of our society to completely reshape us. And otherwise, and Revelation is a powerful book, it really is. And in Revelation 3, Jesus says, if we don't really take notice and actually respond differently to this push and pull of our society, he'll do something quite extreme. In, his, in the words to the Laodicean church who were being pushed and pulled by their society, he said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That is challenging. Do we think that Jesus would do something like that? Meek and mild Jesus? He says, no, that is not how you're meant to live. I will not accept it. It's powerful. Thankfully, the very next chapter, the next two chapters, four and five in Revelation, Jesus gives us this amazing image, this vision and it's our passage tonight. Jesus reveals this counter-testimony to the kinds of forces that, sh- that can shape our lives to reveal who truly we should orbit our lives around. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, Revelation is a book that many people um, I know don't want anything to do with because it just seems like it's just so confusing. Now, so I want to kind of just unpack it and make sense of it before we look into it, because I think it's necessary. Revelation has been, it can be understood as resistance literature. It challenged the day, John's day, 
which was his Roman setting. So John is its author, uh, and he wrote Revelation around 90 AD as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. And he rejected, disregarded his chains and his constraints to speak against that society and to encourage seven churches in Asia Minor to stand up for Christ, to be faithful for Christ, not to compromise, to follow Jesus amidst certain pressures. And there were some incredibly strong pressures that were pushing and pulling at them. Now, one of the pressures for these Christians centred on resisting the way of life that promoted religious devotion to Rome and to Caesar. In this society, uh, in John's society, Rome was pictured as the goddess Roma. And Roma, or Rome, was elected by the gods to permeate their blessing throughout the earth. So that was one of the views. Their, their nation was a god. But also Caesar, and certainly um, Domitian, who was a Caesar during John's day, was given this, these titles, Lord of the Earth, Lord and God, Ruler of the Conquered World and the World's Sure Salvation. Now, thankfully, we don't have to ascribe those words to Boris Johnson. That, <laughs> those were the words given to Caesar. And that was, it was this religious society that worshipped Rome, its gods, and Caesar. And it was these Christians and those in that society, that, that, that idea was reinforced to them continually through its architecture. So there was temples, there were statues, there were um, festivals and processions, there were vows, sacrifices. Um, visiting Roman emperors would come and they, a throne would be set up for them and their officials would circle round them. There would be 24 officials round them, casting their crowns to the, to the Roman emperor. There would be hymns, sacrifices. The public would come and throw off as incense in honour of them. Um, their worshippers would be clothed in white and, wear, and holding palm branches. Now, if you read Revelation 4 and 5, there's, some, there's real similarities, and then we'll look at that, at that in a minute. Now, living in that society with this worship of it's the emperor and the, and the gods and Rome, it would, have, it would have offered a significant challenge and um, pressure upon these Christians to compromise, either just to reject Christ, because that would be so much easier. Let's just live this life. We're not going to suffer because of it. Let's just keep our head down. Or the other way to compromise would be to do a bit of both, to follow Jesus, but kind of just um, accept part of that society. Now, John and Jesus, Jesus is kind of summoning those seven churches not to compromise, to live fully devoted to him. Now, we find similarities to John's context in, with the Roman setting to our context. You know, like, how is it similar in any way? You know, the area of uh, Somerset and Taunton and and Creech has it similar to the Roman setting. Now, there are some striking similarities, and let me show you how it's similar, and how the scripture, which I'll look at, we'll look at together, how it addresses us. The, um, we find similarities between that entrenched Roman religion in John's world to consumerism in our society, which is, has been stated as arguably the religion of our society. Okay? Now, both... They both promote unprecedented security. So in the Roman society, it was something called Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. But it was anything but peaceful. 
Because the Roman prosperity and abundance all came through violence, through war. The peace, they said, you know, be part of us, we'll give you peace. That came as they slaughtered thousands and thousands of people. And their prosperity and abundance came through slave labour. It wasn't peaceful. It was a lie. Now, consumerism in our day promotes the good life. And we see it, and I see it, when I go down to the local heavenly temple-like shopping centre with its banners and images and propaganda and songs and the scores of devotees, including myself, in attendance in this amazing setting. And through consumption, through buying things, we're promised um, happiness, love, youth, beauty, fitness. The list goes on. But amazingly, the system, the way it works, it works with the full knowledge that it can't promise, it can't provide any of those things for us. And it doesn't want to provide those things for us because what it wants to do is create this feeling of discontent. We buy something and within a, a year or so we're going, well, it's not really provided what I, th- I was promised it would. Maybe I need to buy the new and improved product. <laughs> it, it dupes us. It causes us to feel discontent and it leverages that feeling of discontentment to then buy more products. And then... It's not you know, much longer until we feel discontent again and we're looking for the next product. It's what the economist Alan Storkey calls the institutionalism of lying. That's our society. We're being lied to. I'm being lied to. We're being lied to. And tragically, much of what's being produced is generated again through slave labour. Two societies are very similar. The Roman setting and our setting. But consumerism is even further than the stuff we buy. Because freedom of choice is is the defining mantra of consumerism, it determines that even the person we want to be is who we truly are. So the slogan, we can choose to be whatever we want to be. Now, we see this um, in our attempts to construct and project our social media identity. I don't know if you're on Facebook or Instagram or things like this, but there are some great things that come from it. But what you can do, or what many people do, is present this idealised self, the self that we'd love others to believe we are. Now, if you, you know, there's times when you see people post stuff and you think, that's not you, that's how you'd like us to think you are, but that's not you. That's, we can do that now in our society. We can choose to be whatever we want to be. Now, this issue is a live issue, and, you know... I want to tread this with care, but I found it fascinating as I read this report by the Evangelical Alliance that this idea that we can choose to be whatever we want to be is having a direct influence in the whole gender fluidity debate. That even gender is up for discussion. We can choose whichever gender we want to be at the pick of a hat. That's one influence. There's many other things that are shaping that whole dialogue. That's When I read that, that was... Wow, okay, that's interesting. As Christians, it's happening when um, we worship and we go, oh, it didn't really really do much for me, you know. Uh, That kind of thing. We've been guilty of that. Or even a pick-and-mix faith where we say, oh, I like this bit about, you know, regarding Scripture, you know, the aspects of Jesus, but, oh, the Old Testament stuff, I think I'll leave that stuff. You know, we, we love to just pick and choose to create the life that we want. And it's... You you put all of this together, 
what consumerism does is it elevates us as the sovereign individual. We're the one on the throne. We get to do and be and buy and yeah, to be whatever we are, whatever we want to be. We are worthy to do, to buy and be whatever we want. That's the society that we live in. It's not the worship of Caesar or Rome. It's the worship of us. That's our society. That's scary. Now, if Jesus was to look at our society, which he is, and was to speak to us, which he is, and, we, and he speaks to us through his word, he'd be asking, how have you been compromised by your society? How have you been compromised by consumerism? How do you need to repent from those things? Because we all do. We all need to come out of areas in our lives where we have, we have compromised the way of life that Jesus wants for us. Well, Jesus gives us this amazing, because it's the revelation of Jesus. He reveals, it's both the revelation of himself, but he's also speaking. And in Revelation 4 and 5, there's this amazing uh, symbolic vision of God and the Lamb. And it's meant to pull us towards a faithful way of living. And it's to counter the pull of false worship of Rome or Caesar or any beastly power in our day. Now, in Revelation 4, what we see is, you know, as we begin to look at the, pa- the passage, we see John is drawn. This again, a pull, but he's pulled into this heavenly sanctuary and it parodies the Roman throne scene. So he, he, what, he kind of enters it, the door's open, and he goes, I've seen this before. <laughs> this looks familiar. Because he sees a throne and he sees figures clothed in white proclaiming worthy but the scene is absent of the worship of Caesar and the Roman gods. But, and it's familiar, not only because it's the Roman um, setting, but it's also refashioned with Old Testament imagery. So what we see is there's the furniture from Israel's temple or tabernacle. There's, a, there's the um, seven torches or the candlestick. And it's, in this passage, it's very much representing the Holy Spirit. Um, there's also this striking resemblance of the kind of uh, Old Testament theophanies of God, the revelations of God. So there's Ezekiel 1 and you know, the cherubim, there's um, Isaiah 6, there's Daniel 7, if you know those passages. It's very similar to those passages. And it's also very similar to the thunderous revelation at Sinai, where God revealed with you know, um, thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts, he gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to, to Moses. When John enters this room, he sees this Roman setting, but he then sees this um, montage of all these experiences in the past of God. And what John, you know, if we peer over the shoulder of John as he enters, into, enters through this door into heaven, we witness that the heartbeat of the universe is the worship of God. And as we read through this chapter, we see a beehive of activity with the four living creatures, which are very much drawing from Ezekiel 1. And we see the elders, and they seem to be representatives, respectively, of, um, of all creation and of all of God's people throughout time, worshipping God in heaven. And they're encircling the throne. Again, it's like they're in orbit around God. They've orbited their life and their worship around God. And it's beautiful, because if you read it, you see that there's this kind of 
falling down, and then one speaks, and then one drops, and then one stands up, and it's like this liturgical rise and fall. They take their turns in worshipping God, and it seems to just go on forever and ever. It's quite an amazing thing, and um, when I was at Bible college, our lecturer got us to act it out. So he said, okay, you guys are this, this people, you guys are, you, know, you guys are the four living creatures, you guys are the elders, let's do it. And it just was like, bum, 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 bum. It's full of activity. It's a beehive of activity. And the praise is just given continuously to the one whose life emanates sound and colour. You'll see that. There's, there's so much colour in this passage and there's so much sound that's bursting forth around him. And it's all for his holiness. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. And it's for, for his acts in creation. And this vision un- unmasks John's culture and the pretensions that Rome and Caesar were were the true sovereign of the universe. They're not. They're not there. It's God, and he's utterly unchallenged, and he's worthy of praise as the creator. That's what Revelation 4 is about. um, Chapter 5 develops it further by revealing God is not only creator, but he's also the redeemer. And so John's sight shifts from the praise of God to then the scroll in his right hand. And the scroll depicts, it's symbolic of the destiny of the world, bound under God's care. And John suddenly hears, he's he's directed to this mighty angel that shouts out this search, issuing throughout all of creation, for a worthy champion to unfold God's salvation. Contrasting just the massive sounds, the thunderous sounds happening all throughout chapter 4, there's no noise. It's just the sound of sheer silence. Because no one responds to this call. No one is worthy to unfold the destiny of history. And I think it's funny because in our society, one of the common things about how we're going to develop our world is you know, education. You know, that's the answer. If we can educate people, then we can sort this world out. Or technology... Now, those things didn't respond to the call of the angel. No one responded. No one is worthy or able to sort this world out. And so it means, again, Caesar's claims are false. But it also it's, uh, it warrants the trauma of John. He starts weeping. And so it's this amazing thing where in heaven, which is supposed to be this glorious, beautiful place of worship, there's deep sorrow and sadness. It's like this discordant note, it's out of tune to the praise and and the symphony of praise in in chapter 4. There's this man who's weeping because the kingdom of God, he believes, is not going to come on the earth. It's amazing. But then one of the elders that was circling the throne kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, stop crying. (laughs) There is one. Let me show you. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So John kind of sorts himself out and looks up and he doesn't see a lion. He doesn't see a lion. He he hears that there's a lion who's the victor, who's going to save God's world. He's going to do God's will, bring the kingdom of God. He hears that it's the lion of tribe of Judah, but instead he sees a lamb sharing God's throne. And now this is a shocking reversal of Christ as the Lamb. It's mentioned 28 times throughout the rest of Revelation, whereas the idea of Jesus as the Lion is never really mentioned again. Now, this reveals something really special, something really significant. In the words of Richard Hayes, 
it discloses the central mystery of Revelation, that God overcomes the world. He saves the world, not through a show of force, lion power, just like Roman military might. He's not going to come and smash everything apart. He's going to do something really different, something really subversive. God saves the world through the suffering and death of Jesus. Lamb power. Christ's non-violent resistance on the cross ransoms people from every tribe, language, people and nation. I was in New Zealand and I witnessed some of that. It's amazing being... New Zealand is essentially on the map as far as you can go from here. And I witnessed people from different nations, languages, tribes... There are tribes in New Zealand, Maori tribes. I've witnessed that. That's because of Jesus. We we all circled our lives around Jesus. It's amazing what he's doing. That's because of the death of Jesus. And his death restores humanity to God. And we're also restored to royal rule and to a priestly task. And it recalls, um, again, Old Testament imagery of being restored as image bearers being priests, um, or sorry, ruling the earth and being priests in the like of Israel, drawing people to God. And then this chapter depicts Christ's victory as certain when the Lamb, who bearing the scars of death, stands. It's a sign of resurrected defiance to the designs of Rome that slaughtered him. He's still alive, <laughs> or he's come back to life. You can't hold me down. And it's resurrected defiance to the power of death. Who is like Jesus? No one. Now, due to Christ's victory in unfolding the destiny of the world's salvation, he's deemed as worthy. He's the only one worthy of being worshipped and sharing in God's praise. And I don't know about you, when I read it, it seems like there's like this groundswell of praise following the announcement of what Jesus has done. It just starts to pick up and it's like a surging and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And let me just show you. What happens is the, uh, the circle of worship, the living creatures and the 24 elders, they seem to just, they worship God, but they seem to keep in their vision also Jesus Christ. He becomes incorporated into that praise. It's amazing. It's like this... Um, ignition of a new song. It's called a new song that bursts forth from them in verse 9. And these living creatures, they parody the worship that was given to Caesar by playing a harp, which was often done, and giving, offering incense. It's in some way mocking the worship of Caesar. That's false. This is who worship truly should be given to. But then there are more noises that start building up. And it's myriads upon myriads. It's, it's hundreds of millions. It's a bewildering number of angels that then begin to also take the place and circle and, and gravitate and orbit their lives around the worship of God and the Lamb. And then the gravitational pull of the victory and the worship and the glory of God, the Creator and the Lamb, begins to draw in all creation into an expression of worship. It's absolutely amazing. To me, it's the great, one of the greatest passages in Scripture because it pictures, at the end of time, every creature in heaven and earth occupied with the praise of its creator and redeemer. And again, for John's audience, it asserts even the Roman emperors will have to pay homage to this God. Now, I'm not suggesting, and Revelation doesn't suggest, that the end of time, 
there's this universalist kind of salvation where everyone becomes a Christian and becomes part of God's people regardless of their response to Jesus. But I think it does confirm that people eventually, whether they've willfully rejected Christ now, at some point they're going to have to speak truthfully about who Jesus is. There will come a point when every knee will bow before the name of Jesus. And we see in this point at the end of time what allegiance is truly and ultimately beneficial for us. It's living our lives before Jesus, our Saviour. Now, this is John's kind of counter-cosmos to how Rome sees the world. And it beautifully pictures creation one day set back in order, but it also pictures how life is meant to be lived now. We're meant to live our life now in orbit around, revolving our life around Jesus and around God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're meant to step into that, that orbit and that song. There's just layers and layers of, or, or choruses or verses or whatever you want to call it, there's aspects of the song where people start coming in and playing their part, the ordering number of angels and then all of creation. We're called now to take our part in those songs and offer a song to God. And in Revelation, there are five other songs. And um, they're very much in opposition to the songs that would have been sung to Caesar. They're in opposition to the songs that, or the way of life that's, that's happening now, isn't it? When we worship Christ... It's very different to what people are doing down at the pub or so on and so forth. We're, we're saying, Jesus, our whole life is going to be directed by you. Because these songs are so counter to John's cultural setting and ours, they constitute songs of resistance. They live their, we live our lives. We live an alternative way to the way our society would have us live. That's what we're meant to do. We're meant to live our lives, direct our lives... Um, to the glory of God, and in doing so, it would have us behave differently to how consumerism, to how our society would have us live. Now, this can be earth, because this is such a, like, a vast vision, and it's like, well, how does it work on a Tuesday morning when I'm at work at the office? You know, like, does it do anything? It does. It really impacts us on a very, like, just normal level. Um, certainly, what we did this, mo- this evening, when we worshipped and we sung, that's entering you know, the circle of worship it is. But our life of worship isn't just singing songs, is it? I genuinely don't believe the only way that we can love God is by singing. It's actually every single moment in our life is an opportunity to worship God. It really is. And if our songs, the way we live, is meant to live at odds with a society that would pull us away from Christ and for our life to be oriented before, before the Lord... It makes us question, how can we then sing these songs? How can we live our lives in, in quite radical, radically different ways? And it might, it asks us to question how we can live alternatively to uh, the way we interact with the environment, um, the binge-watching binge culture in our society. There's so much access to TV, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all that stuff, which in some ways is amazing. But it's easy just to devote hours on end, just, just consuming copious amounts of television. That's another thing. Can we respond differently to that? Is that the way in which to honour Christ? Is that an act of worship? That's what all our society is doing, consuming en masse. Is that actually a different way to live? Can we actually have it in balance? Um, overeating. 
um, the need, the constant need for more storage in our houses, you know, to consume and buy more stuff. Like following Christ, is there a way in which actually He calls us to live differently to our society that promotes that kind of living? Um, and we live in a society with advertising that constantly makes us feel rubbish about ourselves, makes us feel discontent in order to buy more stuff. Is there a way of living where we can live, as Paul says, I've got the secret of living content in all circumstances? That's a song of resistance if we can begin to act differently in some of those areas. Well, my family, my wife Sarah and my two children, um, a year ago, Jesse wasn't on the scene, but we, um, we sat down and we, we decided, uh, as we began to, we've been exploring, I've been exploring this for quite some time, how, how can we offer a song of resistance? How can we worship God in these areas of, li- of our lives? And there was one area that we wanted to look at and spend a bit of time considering, and it was in our spending habits, particularly with clothing. Um, now, I have to say, admittedly, we've got a long way to go. Well, not a long way to go, we've got a little way to go. We have actually explored it somewhat, but it, it takes time, I'm noticing, to actually change habits. And it, it takes time to change a way of living that society pulls you towards. But we're working, certainly working towards um, reorienting our lives around worshipping God in the area of the clothes we wear. You think, okay, how does that, that make sense? Uh, let me explain. Mark Clavier states that in our consumeristic, consumeristic society, the cruel and enduring irony is we are free to be whatever we want to be because almost everybody else is not. And this is seen particularly in the fast fashion industry where fashion trends are presented to consumers at incredibly fast rates and at really cheap rates. You can buy shirts for minimal prices and you think, how, does, how am I able to have a shirt at this price? I don't know, it doesn't matter. Sweet, it's, it's, it's cheap. Now, for the majority of 40, the 43 million people employed in the sector, our insatiable desire for increased production and low costs, it contributes to an exploitive environment um, with the denial of a living wage um, and unsafe working conditions. And that, was, that noticeably came to the fore in 2013 where, I don't know if you remember, Rana uh, Plaza in Bangladesh. Um, what happened was this, there was this kind of complex that was commandeered and they built in, I believe, eight floors, eight levels, and they stuck in as many workers as they could. The building was not meant to be... Um, it was not meant to house that many people and that much equipment. In fact, the day before it, it dropped, and it just dropped to rubble, um, they did a health and safety check, and it was like, this cannot continue. It must stop. And the bosses were like, yep, yep, yep. Very next day, they sent all the employees back to work. And that day, the whole thing came down. And over a thousand people died and two thousand people were injured because they were producing clothes for us. That is scary. But also because the stuff that we buy, there's such a quick desire. The fashion trends are changing so quickly. You know, it's seasonal, isn't it? Um, they're changing so quickly that we're not wearing our clothes for very long. We're chucking them away. And it's resulting, it's resulting in 92 million tonnes of fashion waste dumped into landfills every year. Now, I'm only just beginning, you know, since last year, beginning to kind of go, that's not right. <laughs> we're living this abundant life, abundant life, good life, because other people 
are suffering because other people are being exploited. And so my family, we, we said, let's, let's live differently in worship to Jesus and to God and to the Spirit. Let's offer a song of resistance. And so we aim to consume consciously, to advocate for workers' rights and for the environment. And there were, we came up with a whole number of ideas. Um, and as I say, we've got a little way to go, but there's, there's, um, we are pursuing this. We genuinely are. Um, one idea we came up with was to identify the ethical brands that would support uh, and offer um, a, a great working environment, a living wage. And you can identify those brands. There's an app called Good For You. You can download that. In New Zealand, the Tier Fund organization released a report that showed and rated the, the, um, the fashion brands and which were ethical. So that was one. We identified the clothes in which we should probably buy and the places we should probably go to. The second thing is we began to see that our clothes, that we should see them as an investment that requires care and maintenance because it's come from someone who has labored over it. Um, and the CEO of Patagonia, is a, a woman called Rose Macario, she says repairing is a radical act. Actually, we should just repair our clothes. We shouldn't just chuck them in the bin and add to the 92 million tons of waste. And the third thing is rather than constantly buying new, and this is so basic and so simple, is buying, where possible, some second-hand clothes. There are three very small steps of a number of other things that we've begun to explore. Those are small small acts in just one area of our family's life. But worship to God and to Jesus even affects the clothes that we wear, the shirt that we wear on our back. Now, I want to encourage you as individuals, as families, as a church, for you to take an inventory of the ways that living in orbit and revolving your life around the Lord cause you to live differently. And I've mentioned other areas, whether it's screening time or the stuff in our house or so on and so forth, to begin to think, how am I being compromised by our society? How as a church are we being compromised and to address those questions in even the seemingly small mundane areas of our life. Because Jesus sees the entirety of our lives, not just the quality of our sun worship, it's every area of our life, and we need to address it. And so tonight, I want to leave you with the question. It's the question for tonight. What's your song of resistance? I want you guys to think about this. Now, I want to pray, and I'm going to leave you with that to consider. Let me pray. God of glory, the end of our searching, help us lay aside all that prevents us from seeking your kingdom, to give all we have to you, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, receive the pearl beyond all price. Amen.